You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I am, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet, coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, on the last day of August 2021, for episode 139 of season three, episode 204 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I've got a couple of things to talk about with you in this episode. It's been a couple of days since I recorded my last episode, and before that there were three days or so, two or three days of lag time from the previous episode. But part of what's going on by way of update before I get into the substance of what I have to say. Part of what's going on is that there's a lot going on. And yesterday morning, I found out that I may have a wrench thrown in when it comes to podcasting, at least podcasting as I have been. Some have called me prolific in being able to churn out episodes most every day this year. But the time in which I record podcasts early in the morning before my wife and children are awake, before I go to work, that time may be taken from me. And I'm not happy about it. I'm doing what I can behind the scenes to make sure that that doesn't happen. But it is an appeal which may fall on deaf ears. And it may fall on deaf ears because Somebody made an arbitrary decision, and they want it to be a certain way, and now they're committed and fooey on me. But that said, I've never been one to take such things lying down or to passively accept them, particularly when I'm as committed to this podcast and my writing as I am, and I'm very committed. So the options really are, on the one hand, to leave well enough alone my schedule, which does not need the tinkering for the sake of tinkering. And then I continue on podcasting. Or else, on the other hand, Mr. Mullet might just find himself a new place to work. But I don't think this is the appropriate time or place to be sharing those things in any detail with you. So we're going to jump right into the substance of what I want to talk about this morning. First of all, I had a bit of an interesting situation yesterday morning where I got an email from YouTube saying that one of my videos had been age-restricted. I had not age-restricted it. I always select the option when publishing a new video on YouTube that this video is not made for children. I don't make videos for children. I make videos for adults. And if children happen to see them, I don't think that is a problem because I'm not putting objectionable, explicit, unhealthy content in my videos. Or at least if I am, I don't mean to. And it would be a shock to me if someone were to point out to me how and where and why what I've put in my YouTube videos is unhealthy or bad for quote-unquote children under the age of 18 to see them. I think in this day and age when you have story time hour with 
LGBT persons, transgender persons, drag queens, for very young children, when you have very young children being taught words like insurrection and coup and taught to salute and pledge allegiance to the gay pride flag in public schools, I think that my doing some videos which are not directed at children, but which might be accidentally watched by children, is hardly the worst thing that parents have to worry about. Now that said, every now and then, Mr. Garrett says a word that before God, he perhaps should not say. Before his fellow man, perhaps he should not say. So forgive me, it is something I'm working on. I work in the oil and gas industry and have for the better part of a decade, almost a decade, going on a decade now. I'm around all sorts of language on a routine basis. Some of that language comes home and and it's something I'm working on. But if you can, if you've seen some of my reaction videos on YouTube, see if you can guess which one was age restricted without you know looking at each one opening each one and it demanding to know whether you would like to change your preferences if you have your YouTube account age restricted without doing that can you guess which one now i think if i were you i might guess that my really really popular one right now where i react to this woke Staff Sergeant, Army Staff Sergeant Bronson in her TikTok video where she talks about martial law being declared in America, telling Americans, especially red state Americans, to get back in their houses, having a gun trained on them. If they are non-compliant, she might just use that gun on them. I do a reaction video to that, and I kept my language clean. I kept my tone civil, calm, but that video is become very, very popular in the past day and a half. And I, if I were you, I might expect that that was the video or that one of the Tom McDonald videos, reaction videos that I did, one of those might have been age-restricted because some of Tom McDonald's content is uh, a bit colorful in its language. But it wasn't any of those, and it wasn't the Batman trailer where Batman is beating the face in of some thug who tried to swing something at him. That was pretty violent, but no, that's not the one either. And of course, that one would not get age-restricted because the big movie studios want to sell tickets to the Batman. They want to sell copies of the Batman. They want to get people excited about the Batman. YouTube would never go after the trailer for the Batman, I don't think. No, actually, it was... The reaction to the Trump team's latest midterm campaign ad that was flagged by YouTube and age-restricted due to violent content. Now, if you've watched that ad, it's a rapid-fire series of clips of how the Afghanistan withdrawal by U.S. forces is going. And there is violence. There are images of people being hurt and harmed. There's a short segment where the guy who was holding on to the airplane falls from the airplane to his death. Very jarring, very disturbing, yes. 
but also that's what's happening. That's what's happening. And so does it make sense to shield children from these images? We're not talking about graphic violence in the sense of blood and gore and viscera, and this is not promoting violence. In fact, this is a video about us needing to do things to put a stop to this violence. Does it make sense to age restrict this video for anything other than political reasons that YouTube wants that video that I did to not be seen by children who then are going to have their political opinions informed by it in any measure? I think it's very telling that YouTube not only flagged my video and changed its setting to age-restricted, but also that when I appealed, I got a response to my appeal within a couple short minutes. I think it was within five minutes. And the link to the appeal process in the first email informing me that my video had been age-restricted was no longer there in the confirmation. Yes, we have reviewed your appeal and we stand by our initial decision. Please read this rote generic section on our website where we describe what it is that we will flag for what reasons, what our criteria are. They're very loose, they're very general, they're very broad, they're very open to interpretation and very much easy to use at the discretion of whoever it is that is moderating or whoever it is that's complaining and flagging something. So if you haven't watched it yet, by all means, go check out that reaction video in particular and give me some feedback on it. If you think, yes, actually, I wouldn't let children watch this either, I agree, let me know. And I'd be interested. I'd be interested to hear why. If you agree with me that this is politically motivated, then I'd be interested to hear that too. Of course, of course I'd love to hear that you think I'm right, you think I'm very correct. Who wouldn't want to hear that? But another thing I want to talk about in this episode, I want to talk about an article by Nathaniel Blake published yesterday at The Federalist. My neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, sent this to me. And the title of it is A Supreme Court That Capitulates on Roe v. Wade Will Unleash a Whirlwind. That's the title. I'll include a link in the description for this podcast episode. But the subscript under the title reads, in case you're not in a position where you can read this right now, Roe v. Wade is the leading example of the Supreme Court acting as an unelected super legislature and imposing its will on the nation. And upholding Roe will only further delegitimize the court. Which I, I agree with. I, I, he's right. He's very right. Now, I'm going to read for you this article, and I want to give you some commentary on it, and then we'll call that good for this episode. Starting from the top, it profits a man nothing to gain the world if he loses his soul, and the deal is even worse if the earthly gain is just a chance at the fleeting respect of a few law professors. Nonetheless, that is how the left is hoping to tempt Brett Kavanaugh as the Supreme Court considers a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade. Writing at National Review Online, 
Ed Whelan observes that such a sales pitch from Harvard Law professor Noah Feldman isn't subtle. Feldman does not attempt to argue that Roe and subsequent decisions such as Casey are correct as a matter of law and constitutional interpretation. Instead, he resorts to mean girl tactics. Only cool justices get to guest lecture at the Ivy League table. He offers Kavanaugh the approval of the left-wing legal establishment in exchange for voting to preserve the invented constitutional right to abortion on demand. Now, he, I'll pause my reading this. That's right. That's right. This is an invented constitutional right. What could be less constitutional than depriving an unborn person, an unborn citizen of these United States of America, of their right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? There's no life for them because they've just had it cut short through the murder that we call abortion. There's no liberty. They're not free. They're not free to make this decision. The left says that this is the woman's choice. This is the mother's choice. If we dare call her that, lest we trigger the left, it's the mother. The mother is killing her child. Call it what it is. It's not the woman aborting a fetus. It's a mother murdering her child because she can't be bothered right now. She doesn't feel like being a mother. She doesn't want to be a mother. She's got other things she'd like to do more. Continuing on. Of course, Feldman cannot promise to deliver on his end of the bargain. He admits the left might still hate Kavanaugh, even if Kavanaugh gives in to their demands. And that's important, right? I'm, I won't stop every sentence, but that's important. So often, the mushy middle folks think that if they have some conservative principles and if they give the left what they want on other things at strategic times, at some future point, the left will wake up, they'll get over themselves, they'll give up their radical leftist ideas, their destructive ideas, their ideas that destroy everything from the metaphysical soul of the individual to things as big and complicated as nations. Afghanistan comes to mind, for instance. But in the end, the left does not love you for giving them a little bit of what they want. If you, give them a, if you give them a cookie, they will come back asking for a glass of milk in a jiffy. They won't thank you for it. They will complain loudly, long, and clearly, and they will still smear your reputation. They will, snill, they, they will still run you through the ringer until or unless you become the loudest voice in the room cheering on their fearless leaders and their useful idiots and their slogans. Those are your options. You don't win any points with them when you give in to them. You just embolden them. You just embolden them. Like sharks that smell blood in the water. They, they smell that blood and they don't get less hungry because they're like, oh, mm, that does it. I'm satisfied. I'm full. No, they smell that blood in the water and they engage in feeding frenzies. Now, continuing on with the article. This is just a more personal version of the left's efforts to intimidate conservative justices as seen in the recent threats to pack the court. Sometimes these tactics work as seen in Chief Justice Roberts' reported switch to save Obamacare 
or in Anthony Kennedy's vote in 1992 to stand by Roe v. Wade. But the consequences of unprincipled political calculation by the court cut both ways. The most important consideration is the wickedness of the radical regime of abortion on demand established by Roe and confirmed by Casey. In the age of ultrasound, we know what abortion is and who it kills. The images eagerly shared on social media and stuck to the fridge condemn the atrocity of our abortion regime in which the child whose features can be seen on the screen and whose movements can be felt in the womb has less legal protection than livestock. The acceptance of and reliance on the violence of abortion poisons society. It turns what ought to be the loving primordial union of mother, father, and child into a battleground of selfish interests. Abortion hardens the hearts it doesn't stop. Overturning Roe will not in itself end these evils, for the justices are unlikely to extend 14th Amendment protections to the unborn, although there is an originalist case for doing so. Abortion policy would therefore return to the states, leaving the pro-life movement to face a grueling state-by-state fight. But at least our democratic victories will no longer be overridden by the caprice of federal judges. Roe has damaged our republic and distorted our politics. It is the leading example of the Supreme Court acting as an unelected super legislature and imposing its will on the nation and upholding Roe will only further delegitimize the court. It is not only leftist law professors and legacy media editorial boards who have opinions about these matters. Many Americans long ago realized that the Supreme Court often rules as it wills, not according to the law or constitution. The justices may hate the ugliness of their confirmation hearings, but the court brought that on itself by becoming the National Abortion Policy Tribunal. Millions of voters have supported the conservative legal movement on the promise that it would fight to get courts out of the abortion business. Thus, if the Supreme Court, with a 6-3 to Republican-appointed majority, voted to uphold Roe and Casey, the decision might well blow up the conservative legal movement for good. Most of the voters who care about the courts are not interested in Chevron deference or other, to a layperson, esoteric legal doctrines. Rather, they want Roe overturned. Thus, upholding Roe would turbocharge populist critiques of the originalist project and its institutions. Although President Donald Trump picked some of these justices, their failures will not be held against him and other populists, but against the conservative legal establishment Trump relied upon in his selections. And let me just say, I think that our author here, Nathaniel Blake, is correct. I think he's right that if a 6-3 conservative justice majority on the Supreme Court votes to uphold Roe, they will represent themselves and Trump, for better or worse, will not lose ground with his constituents. For better or worse, I think that's what it's going to be. <clears throat> Should Trump have relied on the conservative legal establishment, so-called? That's debatable. Did he have much better choices? 
Well, that's also debatable. But what a sad state of affairs it is if we realize suddenly that a six to three majority still cannot overturn Roe or cannot at least put it in check like other bad precedents which the Supreme Court has established and then later those precedents had to be overturned and abolished if the 6-3 majority upholds rather than overturning the bad precedent of Roe v. Wade and Casey. It might just be the end of the Republican Party. It might just be the death of it because I, for one, have as my chief principal reason for voting Republican this issue. This issue. This is not a single issue like this is the only issue, but this issue is indicative of our fundamental values. And the Democrat platform, the Democrat National Convention's platform with regards to abortion, their candidates' statements and positions on abortion, leave no choice. You can't vote for a Democrat and have them affirming these things and embracing these things. Because it isn't just about the unborn. It's about how do we regard human life in general. It's a tacit godlessness to dispose of innocent children in their mother's womb and to call it a woman's choice and to call it women's health. It is a tacit godlessness. There's no fear of God in that whatsoever. And unfortunately, a a lot of moderate Republicans just like during the Civil War with regards to slavery, a lot of moderate Republicans really do not care. They could not care less because the only thing that matters to them is their own comfort. They're Republicans first and foremost because they want lower taxes. They want less regulation. They have small businesses. They want to be profitable and they want to have a nice house and they want to have nice furniture and they want to have a nice car and they want to have a nice boat and they want to have nice vacations and have nice friends even friends that get abortions, and even friends who support abortion. And if that means that they don't lift a finger in the abortion debate except to wag it at the folks trying really, really hard to make murder illegal again in this country as a way of making this country holier, more just, more pleasing to God, less ripe for judgment. Those folks are, I think, the only folks you'll have left in the Republican Party. Frankly, I won't see a reason to show up and vote if a 6-3 majority of Republican-appointed justices uphold Roe v. Wade. Now, they're going to be thinking to themselves about the backlash from the left, riots, Terrorism, assassination, sit-ins. You know, my dad was sharing with me yesterday, my brother and myself, something he was found as he was trying to read up on Saul Alinsky. And I know this is a little bit crude, but that's the point. Saul Alinsky, father of modern community organizing, political grandfather of Barack Obama. Saul Alinsky, author of Rules for Radicals, literally dedicated to Lucifer. Saul Alinsky posited 
that maybe some fart ends at the Philharmonic, maybe some fart ends would be a great way of disrupting the comfort of the ruling elite. The ruling elite that like to go to concerts, orchestras, maybe you show up at their posh, well-dressed, luxurious event and make sure you eat lots of beans before you go and just collectively together, you and all of your radical leftist friends, just pass gas as much as possible to make it as unpleasant, as uncomfortable as possible to those folks and you'll get what you want. Because why? Because those folks care nothing so much about anything as they do about their own comfort. But let's continue on. We're almost to the end of this article. Indeed, if the court stands by Roe, it might upend the entire Republican Party, many of whose voters are tired of an establishment that overpromises and underdelivers. The full reckoning is unpredictable, but GOP self-immolation is a real possibility leading to either Democratic dominance or a triumphant populist GOP, or both in succession. The Republican base will not shrug off another total betrayal. The Supreme Court might attempt to split the baby and uphold the abortion restrictions at issue in Dobbs without overturning Roe and Casey. The specifics of this case makes that difficult, but there is nothing but their self-respect to keep the justices from trying. Of course, that would just leave them back in the same place In a few more years, the time for the justices of the Supreme Court to get out of the abortion business is now. For the sake of the unborn children, the Supreme Court, the country, and their own souls. Well said, Nathaniel Blake. Well said indeed. So here's the trouble. The trouble with the mushy middle moderate types in conservative circles, inside and outside the church, inside and outside the Republican Party, The folks who are concerned by these things but are always wanting to downplay their gravity, their significance, their importance, the urgency with which we should be relating to them, whether we should relate to them at all, whether we should just ignore them, go about our daily lives. Those folks never want the time to be now. They always want to procrastinate. They always want to kick the can down the road. And the folks who actually want to do something meaningful, like overturn Roe v. Wade, have to learn to stop waiting until all of the folks they think agree with them, in principle, are ready to do something about it. Leadership is not waiting until everybody's on board and then you take off. Sometimes leadership is you take off, and whoever follows, follows, and whoever doesn't, so be it. On their own heads, be it. Leadership sometimes requires you charging ahead and give everybody the choice either to try and stop you or to join you. Watching Braveheart with my oldest son, Josiah, really highlighted that here recently for me. And that's why the lords of Scotland who were being bribed, they were being bought off by King Edward of England, Those Scottish lords resented and eventually betrayed and sold William Wallace down the river to the English for a brutal, grisly, painful, tortuous, public 
execution. He was jumping in and calling them cowards to their faces, challenging them on their manhood to step up and do something. Stop negotiating bigger holdings, grander titles for yourself, and actually do something. You have a responsibility, and you are using the people to enrich yourself. You're using the people instead of serving and protecting the people who look up to you, who need you to lead them. And Wallace, meanwhile, he's not there to negotiate except for the surrender of the English and for them paying back what they've stolen and making right the wrongs that they have committed against the Scottish people. Now, obviously, the movie Braveheart is not the same thing as exactly what happened in history. As is always the case, the truth is a little bit more complicated than that. It's the case with every historical figure, whoever it is, however much we like them, they're all mixed bags. They all have their shining moments. They all have their lesser traits, their vices, their hangups, their quirks. But the point is this, whatever shortcomings Wallace had, we remember him today because he was not playing things in a two-faced, duplicitous way like the Scottish lords, the landed nobility were. He was not waiting on them. He was spurring them on, provoking them to join him, to join with the Scottish people. And after his death, that's just what happened under the man who's actually nicknamed Braveheart. The title of the movie is Braveheart, and I think a lot of folks think that William Wallace was nicknamed Braveheart. Robert the Bruce is nicknamed Braveheart. Isn't that interesting? You see in the flow of this story how it is that Robert the Bruce comes to realize what he needs to be doing in this situation. Now, I want to be very clear. We're not saved by the good work of overturning abortion. We're not saved by works. And we shouldn't become activists as conservatives just because there are activists on the left. But neither should we look at the activism of the left and conclude that we have no responsibility because we might get it wrong. We might say something untoward. We might make enemies. We might have people upset with us. If we don't have enemies, if we never have enemies, what that should tell us is that we stand for nothing. There's a famous Winston Churchill quote that I love. And again, speaking of flawed characters, Churchill was a flawed character, but also a great man, also a heroic figure who was instrumental in preparing America in particular to respond to the threat of Nazism and the Imperial Japanese. Late, but not too late, not fatally. But Winston Churchill once said, you have enemies? Good. That means you stood for something once in your life. So also for us, 
the question should not be, will we have enemies? But what is worth having enemies about? And I, for one, think that the church needs to start with its own business, its own internals. When we have leaders and teachers in the church who want to play patty cake with the left and they want to affirm and flatter and minimize the evil that is abortion, we need to address the family business of confronting those leaders inside the church, putting some steel in their spine, or else if they're saying things that are blatantly not true, not just questionably phrased, not just potentially lacking in courage or clarity or purity, but if they're saying things that are out and out not true, we need to confront that inside the church. Lord, bring revival and let it begin in me, in us. Quite frankly, whatever, whatever the radical left would try to do to act out, to throw a tantrum, to riot violently, if Roe v. Wade were overturned or if it were sent back to the states, whatever the radical left would do is on them. And our conservative Supreme Court justices who factor that in and they think to themselves, well, maybe we shouldn't do anything about it. You're negotiating with terrorists. Those are domestic terrorists. The George Floyd, Black Lives Matter riots, Antifa riots, autonomous zones, terrorism, riots. Can there be a protest with people who shouldn't be associating themselves with Black Lives Matter? But they are, but they're peaceful. They're making claims that I disagree with, but they're being peaceful. That's different. I'm not saying all protest is riot, but dear Lord, not all riots are just mostly peaceful protests. Come on. We as Christians can't bury our head in the sand like so many ostriches and ignore these things in large part because in this form of government, in the American system of government, we bear some responsibility. We bear some of the burden of authority here. Not all. I don't have unilateral decision-making capabilities. Neither do you. And we have to remember that. We have to remember that, for one, when it comes to how much we stress out or devote ourselves to these things because we have other responsibilities as well. I have a wife, I have children, I have work to go to, I have friendships, I have other opportunities to weigh in and to do justice, to love kindness, to love mercy, to walk humbly with my God besides just on this issue. But we should remember what we read in the Proverbs. Proverbs 24, 11, rescue those being led away to death, and restrain those stumbling toward the slaughter. Verse 12 says, If you say, Behold, we did not know about this, does not he who weighs hearts consider it? Does not the one who guards your life know? Will he not repay a man according to his deeds? That is to say, he does know, 
he does consider it, he will repay a man according to his deeds. So, with regards to these political matters, so-called political matters, yes, we need wisdom. Yes, we need self-control. Yes, we need to keep things in balance. But hands that shed innocent blood are on the short list of things that God says are an abomination. He utterly loathes and detests hands that shed innocent blood. In fact, if you look at that list, that short list of things that God says he hates, he utterly loathes and despises, if you look at that short list, you can make a case that each and every one of those things has become central to the identity of the Democratic Party in the United States of America to the point that for a professing Christian to claim there's no difference, there's no difference between Republicans and Democrats, it doesn't matter how you vote, you can vote one way or the other, to say that is akin to saying that good is evil and evil is good, that there's no difference. It's a kind of nihilism. It's a kind of know-nothingism. It's a kind of agnosticism. I'm not saying that it's necessarily a conscious decision. I think a lot of folks repeat these things uncritically. They hear them, and they haven't studied deeply. They haven't thought at length about these things. But we need to. We have to. We have to. The consequences for us, for our children, for our children's children, for generations to come, are so very dire if we don't. By God's grace, we press on, and we will be faithful to God. But even if we aren't, God is faithful, even when we're faithless. Let's trust in God. We trust in the good Lord. Lean not on our own understanding, but on all our ways. Acknowledge him. He will lift us up. That's all I got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.